There we go. Okay, we are in uh, Romans chapter 15. And uh, last week, we uh, started in verse 14, and I was hoping to get further, of course, than we did. But we looked at verses, pretty much verses 14 and 15, and kind of just a little bit at the first part of 16. Uh, so I want to pick it up today with verse 16 and, uh, and go down through verse uh, 21, Lord willing. So we'll see how that goes. Um, but let's, uh, let's begin reading in verse 14 and read down through 21 and then do our review and go from there. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given to me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in the things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in power of, the, of signs and wonders, in the power of the Holy Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Okay. So, uh, last week we looked at, started looking in verse 14 and 15. Uh, what are some of the things you remember that we talked about last week? He believed that they knew. You know, it wasn't that he was having to teach them. They, they had not all the Okay, good. So he uh, he uh, commends them because he understands that they uh, that the, these believers are not ignorant people. They're not uninformed. They do have, he says, all knowledge. They have a they have a full uh, what what might say a full or broad knowledge of the Christian faith. Okay, what else? How does he know that? He's never been there. Okay. 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 So even though uh, he is confident that they have uh, this broad knowledge of the Christian faith, that they are, he says, full of goodness. And uh, and they're able to admonish one. Even though that is true, he still finds it necessary to write this letter. Is 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 Paul just kind of 
just kind of gr- trying to grease the wheels here a little bit as he says this stuff? Is he is he sincere in these things he's saying to the Romans? You say he is. Okay. Why 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 would we dismiss the idea? Some suggest that he's flattering the Romans here. Why would we dismiss that as not true? The condemnation of flattering speeches in chapter sixteen. Okay, okay. In chapter sixteen and in other places, Paul speaks uh, speaks very strongly against the idea of flattery. He denies that he's ever been insincere in his ministry or he's ever flattered any of them. How do they handle people who said he's being insincere? How would they handle the idea that all scripture is inspired? Because then they say God Himself is inspiring insincerity. Well, that's a good question. I don't. <laughs> that's one reason why I. Uh, uh, that's reason one reason why I don't believe he is. Uh, uh, the ones that the ones who do believe that Paul. That, actually, I, I read one commentary who said he. He, he, that he was flattering them, but not insincerely. And I'm going, excuse me, that's the definition of flattery. Okay, uh, So, uh, uh, it's just kind of a hard one to get around. And I don't know how they do that. So, thankfully, I don't have to answer for other people's <laughs> positions. Yeah. I saw that before, too. We talked about how he uses the uh, uh, authors of these letters and their personalities come out in these letters. Yeah. Like Paul says, at one point, he wishes the... Uh, Judaizers were for masturbating. Yeah, yeah. And you know, that's something he would have said that God inspired that because I believe that's how the Holy Spirit feels about it. Yeah, yeah. Good point. He's very serious about uh, race. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. It's a good point, yeah. What else? We talked about last week. We talked about how serious Paul took the condition that God gave him. Okay. That um, and I'm sure you'll go into it more because the next verses yeah, yeah. talks about what the goal is and uh, how that goal drove Paul to do what he did. Yeah. And uh, thinking about that, that's a great. That can be a great motivator for us because, as you pointed out, God has put us in the same position, wants to partner with us, so to speak, mm-hmm. and use us to, to do some ministry. And uh, I don't think about that too often. Not often enough. Mm-hmm. What is the goal? What mm-hmm. is this, mm-hmm. this point? Yeah. And it's pretty clear that Paul had that in the front of his mind. Yeah, 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 absolutely. He is, uh, he, he recognizes that, that, uh, that he has been given what he calls a grace. Okay, we talk about it, we use the term spiritual gifts. And when we use the term spiritual gifts, we're, we're thinking of these abilities or these spiritual, might call them talents or skills that God has given to us. And we believe that God has given them, uh, has given to everybody at least one spiritual gift. I believe he can give more. Some people say he only gives one. I don't know why they insist on that. But, but, but uh, he at least gives everybody at least one. But every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. And we think about these abilities but it is significant that they're called gifts. They're called graces. And, and uh, I think oftentimes when we, when we think about spiritual gifts, we don't think about them as a grace. We think about them as kind of a duty or an obligation or a responsibility. But they really are a grace. They're a gift. They're a blessing from God that God has given to us. Now, some people go off the deep end 
in the extreme on that, and and they're so focused on on uh, on on the gift as a uh, on the gift as a gift or as a grace from God that they're that they're focused entirely on on the benefit they receive from the gift that has been given to them. But of course, that's not the idea of spiritual gifts at all. Spiritual gifts are not given to you for you. And they are not given to me for me. But they are given to you for others. And that comes out in Paul's writings here that he has been graced. He recognizes that he's been graced. But as we'll see, as Jim was pointing out in the verses we're going to look at today, that he has been given this grace in order that he might be a servant of Christ to others. So if we have a gift from God, which we all do, it is not so that we can kind of just sit and enjoy and soak up our gift, but it's so that we can employ it in serving others. Okay? So these are some of the things that Paul is developing as he's trying to explain why he has even bothered to write this letter. Okay, so he's written this letter. He's written very boldly, but he's writing to people whom he acknowledges are full of goodness, full of knowledge, and able to admonish each other. So why even write this letter? And uh, the other question of why he writes the letter is he's never been to Rome. He's not responsible for the church in Rome in a direct sense. He's, he's not the founder of the Roman church. And so why would he presume to write a letter like the letter of Romans uh, to these people that uh, most of whom he's never met. And uh, so those are the two questions that Paul is addressing here. And, uh, and, he, and he has uh, made clear uh, that he has done so, he says, because in, at the end of verse 15, because of the grace that was given to him from God, uh, which is the point we've just been talking about. Then, then he kind of interrupts his thoughts. So he's explaining why he's written the letter. But, but uh, in explaining why he's written the letter, he's brought up the subject of the gift that he's been given from God. And then beginning there in verse 16, he begins to explain what that gift is, what that grace is that he has received from God and his response to the grace. And he doesn't really, uh, he doesn't really get back uh, uh, until later in the verse, verse 16, does he get back to this idea of why he's written the letter. So, so he's talking about this grace he's been given from God. And he describes the grace in, in, at the beginning of verse 16. He says, to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles. So, the grace that he's been given, this tremendous blessing that Paul views himself as having been given, and I, I, I keep coming back and stressing this, that he views, it as a, he views it as a blessing. It's this tremendous responsibility he's got. And it involves a tremendous amount of work. And in Paul's life, as we study Paul's life, it involves a tremendous amount of personal sacrifice, a great personal cost to him. Okay? So his life is uprooted and he spends the rest of his life traveling around and being beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and all these things that he goes through. And he considers it a blessing because it's something God is allowing him to do so that he could be a co-worker with God. And so he says in verse 16, he says that this grace involves being a minister of Christ. What does the word minister mean? Is a minister somebody who stands up in the front of a sanctuary or church and preaches at people? 
It's a servant. That's right. Okay. So minister is a servant. And so Paul is saying that I am a servant of Christ. I'm a servant of Christ to the Gentiles. So what we what we understand then is that that God has graced Paul. God has given to Paul this tremendous blessing of being God's servant, being Christ's servant as Christ is serving the Gentiles. Okay. So Christ Christ's desire is to serve the Gentiles. And so what Christ has done in his desire to serve the Gentiles is he has gone and he has recruited Paul. And he said, okay, Paul, I want to serve the Gentiles, but I'm no longer there. So I want you. I want, I want you. I'm going to give you the ability. I'm going to give you the knowledge. I'm going to give you the skills. And I want you to go and do for the Gentiles what I would do if I were there. So Paul is a servant of Christ as Christ is serving the Gentiles. This is the essence of spiritual gifts. The essence of spiritual gifts is Christ has a work that he wants to do in the life of somebody else. Christ has something he wants to accomplish in the life of people. And he has come to you and he has recruited you and he has said, I want you to be my co-worker. I want you to serve me. Now, I will give you the abilities. I will give you the skills. I will give you the strength. I'll give you everything you need. And I want you to go and do for that person what I would do if I were there. But, of course, he's not here. Now, that's not an accident. It's not an accident that Christ is not here and can't do this. It's not like, you know, after everything was said and done, he ended up in heaven and went, oh man, I forgot to do such and such. You see, it's not an accident. He planned it this way. It was his plan that he would leave and he would return to heaven and that he would then, through his own people, endow them and empower them to accomplish the things that he would do if he were still here. That was his plan in the first place. That's what spiritual gifts are. So if you have a spiritual gift, okay, I don't say that in a conditional sense. I say it in a sense you have a spiritual gift. If you have a spiritual gift, you have that spiritual gift because there's something that Christ wants to do in the life of somebody else. And he has given you the ability and he has given you the power. He's given you the knowledge. He's given you everything you need in order to do that thing that he wants to do in the life of somebody else. He didn't give you a spiritual gift so that you can just go, oh, this feels so good. I love having this gift. That's not what spiritual gifts is about. Spiritual gifts is about something that Christ wants to do in the life of somebody else. And he wants you to serve him by going and serving them with whatever that spiritual gift is. I don't know what your spiritual gift is. I don't know if you have a spiritual gift of faith or prayer or, or giving or administration or, or uh, uh, you know, all the different gifts there are. And, you know, there are many that are listed in New Testament. I believe there are many besides those that are listed. I don't believe the ones listed in New Testament 
are necessarily exhausted. There's no reason to assume that they are. But whatever your spiritual gift is, it has been given to you because Christ wants you to join Him in serving other people. So, when we just kind of sit on our spiritual gift, when we are indifferent to our spiritual gift, and we just go, well, yeah, I've got a gift, but so what? When we have that attitude, what we're saying to Christ is, I know you have called me to serve you. And I'm glad you saved me. I'm glad you bled and died on the cross for me. I'm glad you came and you did everything you did in order that I could be saved. But I'm simply not interested in serving you. And I'm not interested in the people you're interested in. I'm just interested in me. I've got a life to live. I've got things to do. And so, thanks for this spiritual gift, but no thanks. So that would be our attitude. That's not Paul's attitude. Paul's attitude is, wow, God has graced to me. God has given me this wonderful opportunity to be a co-worker with Him, to serve Him in serving the Gentiles. Now, that's a big step for Paul because he's a Jew. You know, he, you know, he was really, he was really not really all that inclined to think very positively about Gentiles. And then Christ comes to him and Christ says, well, you know, I think, I think a great deal about the Gentiles. And I love the Gentiles a great deal. And so I want to reach the Gentiles. I want to see the Gentiles saved. And he comes to Paul and he says, Paul, I want you to be the one to do that. And Paul, instead of just going, well, I'm sorry, Lord, but I've got my own thing going on here. Paul says, wow, that's pretty cool. God wants me to work with him in serving the Gentiles. And so to Paul, it was this great privilege. And so he he takes it upon himself and he's eager to do it. And he understands that not only has Christ given him the power to do this, not only has Christ given him the wisdom to do this, the skills that he needs to do it, not only has Christ done that, but as we'll discover as we look at these verses, Christ, as Paul gets busy doing it, Christ is actually working through Paul and accomplishing it. So it's not even really Paul doing it. It's God doing it. So he becomes this channel through which God is flowing. Do you know what it's like to be a channel for God? Yeah, that's a pretty awesome thing. You know, I'm sure many of you have experienced that. and There have been times in your life when you just know that, wow, God did something through me in the life of another person. That's a pretty awesome thing. And that's the kind of thing that Paul's talking about here. So he says, he says, so I'm a minister of Christ to the Gentiles. He says, ministering as a priest, the gospel of God. So he is a he uh, he he brings up he uh, he brings up this imagery from uh, from the old Jewish cultus, what we call the cultus. We use that term. We don't use it in the typically the pejorative sense that we use the term cult, which, you know, most days nowadays when we use the term cult, it refers to, you know, some negative group, some really weird group or some heretical group or something like that. But the word really, uh, really has the idea rather of a system of religion or the way a particular religion is practiced. And so when we speak of the Jewish cultist, we're speaking of the Old Testament law and, and religion and the Old Testament system. Okay. So, so we're just talking about how the Jews worship God, how they practice their religion and the 
and the rules and the systems and the priests and the sacrifices and the temple. And that's all part of the Jewish cultus. And so Paul is bringing up this imagery of the Jewish cultus, of the way the Jews practice. And particularly, he's bringing up this imagery of the priests. Now, we have to understand that Paul is not suggesting here that he's wanting to reinstitute the idea of a formalized priesthood in the Christian church. You know, the book of Hebrews particularly is very clear that that is passé. That is no longer the case. We no longer need a mediator between us and God. We We no longer need someone else to stand between us to grant us access to God. Okay. So that's not what he means here. He's simply using the idea or the imagery of a priest as someone who is offering a sacrifice to God. And in the Reformation, we had this this tremendous emphasis on the idea of the priesthood of the believer. Okay, And the idea of the priesthood of the believer then is that, that we've now made this shift from the idea that we have to have some elite priest who stands in front of us and mediates between us and God. We no longer need that. But all of us are priests. All of us have now direct access into the Holy of Holies. All of us have direct access to God. Okay. So, it's not that we don't have any priests in the Christian church. Instead, what we have is a church full of priests. We're all priests. And we all stand in this position of having direct access to God. That's why we call it the priesthood of the believer. Okay? All of us as priests are believers. We have a church full of priests. Okay. Well, so that's the primary idea of the priesthood of the believer. But Paul, I think, is introducing another idea of the concept of the priesthood of the believer. And that would be the idea that not only am I somebody who brings a sacrifice to God, but I am one who stands in a place, in one sense, of mediating God's grace to others. Okay? So, now we find out that we don't need just one special person to do that, but that we all do that because we're all gifted. So, Paul is standing in a relationship to the Gentiles that they need because they, they don't know about God. If he's, he's going to quote that verse from Isaiah at the end of the passage where he says, those who had no news have seen and those who have not heard will understand. Okay, So, there's these people who have no knowledge about God. How are they going to find out about God? Well, they're going to find out about God as Paul ministers to them or mediates the gospel to them. He brings the gospel to them okay, and introduces them to Christ. Now, in a sense, we could understand that whenever you exercise your spiritual gift, that's what you are doing. When you are exercising your spiritual gift, there are two things. There are two aspects to the exercise of spiritual gifts. And one of them is that you have certain abilities, God-given spiritual abilities, that somebody else doesn't have. Somebody else in the church doesn't. So maybe it's administration. Maybe it's giving. Maybe it's faith. Maybe it's teaching. You know, it could be any, any number of things. But you have, you have a gift. And, other, and, and most other people, the majority of other people don't have that. Some others do. But there are a lot of people who don't. And so what you do, say your gift is giving, then what you do if your gift is giving is you are mediating the grace of God. 
You are bringing the grace of God to others within the church who don't have what they need in that area. Okay, they're lacking in that area, and so you bring. So, in one sense, you're a mediator between God and them. You're serving as their priest. Okay, you are bringing to them what they don't have. Okay, so say uh, said person has a gift of teaching. Not everybody in the church has the gift of teaching. Most people in the church don't have the gift of teaching. And so God has placed teachers in the church. What do they do? Do, do they, uh, they bring to people insight and understanding of God's Word that, they might not, that the average person might not ordinarily get because they just don't have that particular ability or skill. Okay? So in one sense, as as all of us are priests to God, we have a gift in which we are mediating to others in the church the grace of God. Okay? Now, the other side, we won't talk about this today, but I just want to mention the other aspect of the gifted person is not only does he minister to others what they don't have, but God has given to him, okay, or her. Uh, not only do they do that, but we understand from, uh, from other passages in Scripture that the other role of the gifted person is to equip the church to do things they might not otherwise be able to do. So, uh, so one of the things that, the, say, a person who's uh, gifted in the area of giving, one of the things they do is they not only give, but they teach others how to give who might not otherwise know how to do it. A person who is a teacher not only, hopefully would not only simply teach the Word, but he would encourage people to understand how they can dig in the Word and find things for themselves. Okay, so, so it's kind of a dual thing that a gifted person does. He both ministers that gift, he gives, he gives or he provides that service, but he also helps equip the church. Okay, so, But Paul is focusing here on this aspect of the priesthood, his priesthood as a minister of the Gospel. He says, I am... I am ministering or I am serving as a priest. And, and one aspect of this priesthood that he's ministering is he is presenting a sacrifice to God. Okay, then when we think of priests, that's what we think of priests doing, right? particularly in the, in the Old Testament cultists. You know, when we think of a priest, one of the main things they did was they would offer, the people would bring these sacrifices and they would offer these sacrifices to God. And that's what Paul says He's doing. He's offering a sacrifice. The sacrifice he's offering is the Gentiles. So he's bringing these Gentiles that to whom he has ministered. He's bringing them and he's presenting them to God. Now he wants to make sure that when he presents them to God, his sacrifice is acceptable. That was a very important part of the Old Testament cultus, wasn't it? was making sure your sacrifice was acceptable. So there were certain strict stipulations that were placed upon these sacrifices that were brought and were put upon put uh, on the, on the altar. They had to be uh, spotless and they had to be such and such, such and such, such. And there were all these stipulations to, in order to be acceptable to God. And Paul says, I want to make sure that the sacrifice of the Gentiles that I bring to God is acceptable. And this is the explanation for his letter to the Romans. Because the Romans fall, generally speaking, into this class, most of them, into this classification of the Gentiles. And so in writing this letter, even though he acknowledges that they are full of goodness and filled with knowledge 
and able to admonish one another, even though that's true, he wants to make sure that these people are really acceptable to God. So he writes the letter of Romans to remind them of all these things that they either knew or should know, and and certainly to instruct them probably in some things they hadn't thought about before. But his idea is he wants the Gentiles to be acceptable to God. And so that's why I'm writing this letter. I'm writing this letter so that you people will, when I offer you to God, I can say, God, here, here are the Gentile peoples. And look at them, God. They're just the way you want them to be. They're just what you like. Now, now translate that into life today. Translate that into your spiritual gift. Your spiritual gift or gifts are given to you so that you can minister as a priest offering a sacrifice to God. If you are offering a sacrifice to God from your spiritual gift, what is that sacrifice? Thinking about what Paul said here, what is the sacrifice you offer to God in the exercise of your spiritual gift? Okay, you're using your gift, but what is the sacrifice that you're giving to God? Okay, now that now he does talk about sacrifice there, but I think he's, that's a different issue there. Because there he's talking about the sacrifice of our lives. But here we're talking about what is it in the exercise... What is Paul offering to God in the exercise of his spiritual gift? What is he offering? The ones he's ministering to. Precisely. In other words, in the exercise of your spiritual gift, you are offering to God a sacrifice of the people to whom you minister that gift. So whatever your gift is, as you're employing that gift in serving others, it's like you're taking those people and you're lifting them up to God. And you're saying, God, in this area of my spiritual, you know, I, I have my gift in this area. This, you know, maybe, maybe, your, maybe your gift is faith. And so there's certain people, you know, we have a prayer list up here of needs and, and there's people you're praying and, and God has gifted you in the area of faith. And so, so you're, so you're praying for those people and you're believing God for those people. You're offering a sacrifice, you're offering a sacrifice of prayer and that sort of thing. But the ultimate thing that you're wanting to offer to God is those people. See, gifts, gifts is not about gifts. Gifts is about people. That's what it's about. Okay? If I have a gift, it's, if the gift is not about me and it's not even about the gift, it's about the people whose lives I can impact and see them grow and mature and become more like Christ. Whatever that gift is, that's what God wants to be doing for me. He wants to be transforming the lives of other people. That is the work that He left the church to do when He left. And like I say, it wasn't an accident. He didn't get to heaven and go, oh man, I forgot to finish building the church. That, that's, you know, it didn't happen that way. He went to heaven because he wanted the church to build itself up. Because he wanted the members of the church to be interacting, working together, loving one another, building one another up, and offering one another up as a sacrifice. 
And so whatever gift God has given to you, what He wants you to do is He wants you to be busy about offering people up to Him, making them more like Christ, making them acceptable to God. So if someone's if someone is weak in an area and they, they don't have everything they need in an area, then here's another brother or sister in Christ in the church and they come over and they go, well, I have abilities there. I can help this person. I can build this person up here. I can make them more like Christ and so then I can offer them to God and I can say, God, here's this person and I've helped them grow in Christ. I've helped them become more like Christ. Here they are, God. They're more acceptable to you now because because of what you have done through me in the exercise of my spiritual gift. Okay. Now, that was not just a throw in line without what you have done through me. That's Paul's point, because he says and, and at the end of the verse, he says, he says, so that my offering might be acceptable to God, sanctified, he says, by the Holy Spirit. So. It's not that just Paul is just kind of just doing all this stuff and he's just kind of on his own over here. He's doing it. And in the particular case, what he's doing is he's writing a letter of Romans to the Roman church in order to present the Romans acceptable to God. But what's happening as Paul is doing that is he's writing this letter and then he's sending it off to Rome and Rome receives the letter and they begin to read this letter in their churches. What happens is the Holy Spirit kicks in. And he goes to work and he starts taking the words of the letter of Romans, transforming the lives of the Gentiles. Now, when did that stop? It hadn't stopped, has it? He's still doing that with Romans, isn't he? God is still sanctifying Gentiles through the book of Romans that Paul wrote 2000 years ago. We've spent now over uh, right at two years studying the book of Romans. Can you imagine when Paul sat down and penned the book of Romans that he ever imagined in his furthest imagination that 2,000 years later in some town, in some remote part of the world he's never ever heard about that there would be a group of people who would meet once a week for two years to study this letter and that they would be being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit by that letter just because Paul was willing to exercise his spiritual gift. Isn't that something? So, Paul just goes through his, you know, relatively mundane task of writing this letter. He didn't even write it himself. He dictated it. And we'll be introduced later to the guy who actually put the ink to paper. And I think about that guy. You know, we never think about Tertius. I think the guy's name is, is uh, Tertius. Okay. We never think about Tertius. Okay. We never think about him. But here's a guy. You know, I don't know what his spiritual gift was, but maybe his spiritual gift was just writing. <laughs> or maybe his spiritual gift was serving. And so he's serving Paul by writing this letter. You know, have you ever thought about it? We'll talk about him when we get into Romans 16. But you ever thought, here's a guy who just spent, you know, a, a few hours or a couple of weeks or something helping Paul get these ideas down on a piece of paper. That's all he did. And through his service to Paul, how many lives have been transformed? 
I mean, just one sentence in the book of Romans triggered the Protestant Reformation. And somebody wrote that down. Somebody said, well, I can serve Paul. I can do this. He needs somebody to write this stuff down. So I can do that. And so he, made, you know, he just got busy serving. And he just served. And the entire Christian church since then, since then has profited by this guy who was willing to say, well, I can help Paul get this stuff down on parchment so it can be sent to Rome. See, we have no idea the reach of, of our spiritual gifts when those spiritual gifts are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's what God did. God took those simple words and, and spoken through Paul as Paul exercised his gift and committed to paper or parchment, written down on parchment or whatever it was he wrote it on, written down okay, by some guy who's just been willing to just make himself available to Paul just to do this menial task of writing. And then the Holy Spirit has taken that and filled it with power and sent it out to the whole world. And millions and millions and millions, probably billions of Christians now, lives have been transformed because of a guy who said, I can serve. I can serve. And the Holy Spirit fills that service with His power and transforms lives. And so that's what, that's what Paul is writing about here. And he says, that's why I've written this letter. Because I want to present people approved unto God. And I have the confidence that the Holy Spirit will take what I do and He will fill it with power and He will take it and He will use it. So he says... In verse 17, he says, Therefore, he says, In Christ Jesus I have found reason for boasting in the things that pertain to God. That's an interesting statement. We kind of look down on boasting. We don't think it's a very good idea unless we do it for our basketball team or our football team. Then we can boast, right? (laughs) Uh, But we're really not crazy about people who boast. And Paul introduces here and a couple other places in his writing, he introduces this idea of boasting. Okay? And, uh, and we know from the Scripture that there's good boasting and there's bad boasting, right? <laughs> okay? there's, there's the kind of boasting where someone is boasting in themselves or they're boasting in their accomplishments or, they're, 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 or sometimes they're even boasting in others as if, they accomplished it. Like how many of you people were boasting in the thunder this week as if you played any basketball, you know? <laughs> you know? But we boast in our basketball. You know, and I, that's okay. It's all in fun. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to imply that that's sin to boast for your football team or your basketball team, you know? But that's an example of what we do. You know, somebody else accomplishes something and because we're somehow associated with them, we kind of, you know. Well, you know, that can be kind of good. You know, I'm, you're going to hear me boasting about my new grandson, okay? And, you know, you're going you're gonna to see us boast about our children. Well, you know, why? Well, because of their accomplishments. We're thrilled with their accomplishments. We delight in their accomplishments. We're just, we're kind of associated. You know, I really didn't have a whole lot to do, at least nothing recently. I didn't have a whole lot to do with the birth of, uh, of, of uh, Schaefer Emerson. You've got to remember that name. Uh, yeah, put the C in there. And the E. I left the E out on Facebook and got scolded. Uh, but I didn't have a lot to do with that. But you're going to hear me boast a lot about him, you know, okay? Well, you know, that, that's okay, okay. 
But, but what the Scripture really speaks against is this idea where I begin to take credit for things I have not accomplished. Where I begin, or I begin to boast in things that I have done merely in the flesh without the empowerment of God. And you see, Paul had done a lot of that in his day. So we read in Philippians chapter 3, he reads, we read about all these things that Paul had accomplished. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews and Pharisee of Pharisees and, and keeper of the law. And he'd done all these things. But he says, I came to the realization there in Philippians 3. He says, I came to the realization that if I was going to know Christ, I was going to have to suffer the loss of all these things. What he, what he meant by that, he, it, he didn't become less of a Jew. He didn't become less of a Pharisee. What it meant was he quit boasting in those things. He quit relying on those things. He quit depending on those things. And he says, I have suffered the loss of all things. Now, oftentimes we read that verse and we think Paul's talking about the loss of like material possessions or things like that. That's not what he's talking about. Now, he did suffer the loss of a lot of material things, but that's not what he's talking What he's talking about there is he suffered the loss of everything that he would put his trust or confidence in. And he had to do that if he was going to gain Christ, if he was going to know Christ, if he was going to know the fellowship of his suffering and the power of Christ at work in his life. So, so, so Paul had to make a choice in his life that he was going to quit boasting in himself. I've got to quit boasting in myself if I'm going to know Christ. And so Paul came to that point in his life where he quit boasting. And then Christ says to him, I want you to be my servant and I'm going to give you everything you need to do the job. And when you go out and do the job, I'm going to work through you to accomplish it. And so he did that. He began, he says, from Jerusalem. And round about as far as Illyricum. What did he do? He began simply to preach. He began to talk about the things that God gave him to talk about. And in the course of doing that, we discover, he says, he not only had his words, but he, he lived it out. We read, we read in Acts of many of the Acts of Paul, things he did. But he says in addition to that, he says there was the power of signs and wonders. Now, Acts doesn't tell us much about the miracles that are associated with Paul. And Paul doesn't tell us much about them. But apparently there were enough that Paul recognized as he began. It says, he says from Jerusalem. Now, People could quibble and they say, well, Paul's ministry really started in Antioch or Paul's ministry really started in Damascus or whatever. But Paul focuses it from Jerusalem because that's really where the gospel got started. Okay, And the point for Paul is there's been this progression and throughout my life I've gone through this progression. And what happened was I began to minister. I began to exercise my gift. And what I discovered was that as I spoke and as I acted, then God accompanied that with power of signs and wonders and the power of the Holy Spirit and things started happening and Gentiles started getting saved. And so the Gentiles get saved in one place and then I go, well, it's time to move on. He'd go to the next place and he'd go to the next place. Round about until he got clear to Illyricum. Now, Illyricum is the last province before you get to Italy. It's the last province before you get to Rome. 
So what he's saying is, I started out there in Jerusalem and, and God was working through me until I got this far. Now, that's a lesson about spiritual gifts in itself, I think. God told Paul to go do the job. And he said, I'll give you what you need. And Paul just stepped out and started doing it. You know, there are a lot of people who just sat around waiting for some kind of revelation of what is your gift. I don't know how many Bible studies, lectures, conferences, etc. I've sat through where the whole discussion has been how to discover your spiritual gift. Well, there's probably a place for that. I don't want to belittle it. But folks, let me just say this. If you're, if you're new in the faith, if you're a young Christian, it's going to take you a while to figure out. If you've been a Christian for a while and you don't know what your spiritual gift is, there's something wrong. What it means is you've not been trying to serve God. Because if you've been a Christian for a while and you have tried to serve God, you will have discovered what your gift is. Because you will have found some things you've tried to do that don't work. And you'll find some things you try to do that really work. And the things that you try to do that really work, that's your gift. It's that simple, folks. You know, we do all kinds of of pop psychology tests and all kinds of things to try to figure out our spiritual gifts, you know. And I've taken those. I quit taking them. They're ridiculous. I mean, that's not, I don't want to belittle them, okay? But for me, they're Well, for one reason, for me, they're ridiculous because I know what my gifts are. Because many years ago, I just said, I want to serve God. And I started trying to serve God. And what I found out is that I tried to serve God, that in my works and in, in my words and my works, there haven't been any signs and wonders, but there certainly has been the power of the Holy Spirit, I believe, that God has accompanied my works and certain things I've done have been blessed and there are certain things that I don't do because they don't work well. You don't see me down there in the nursery. Okay? I was doing good to handle my five kids. You know? So you don't find me in the nursery. You know? I praise God for the people that have that gift and you can see it in their lives. You can see it in my wife's life. You know, the gift that she has with smaller children. Smaller children scare me to death, you know, unless they're mine or my grandkids, you know. Everybody else's kids scare me to death. They intimidate me, okay? And some of my, my own kids intimidate me a lot, but that's another story. Okay. So, so, you know, I never felt any real power when I was taking care of kids. So I don't do that very much unless I really have to. Okay. Sometimes we have to do things that don't fit with our gift. Okay. But there are. But if, if you've been a Christian for a while and you've tried to serve God, just because you know God wants you to serve Him, pretty soon you're going to go, "Wow, God does something when I do that. The Holy Spirit works through that when I do that. Lives are changed when I do that. Uh, that's my spiritual gift." And so Paul just simply began to do what God told him to do. And as he began to do it, he found he started having some real success. Gentiles started getting saved. And so he says, from Jerusalem to Alaricum, roundabout to Alaricum, I have fully preached. Now, that doesn't mean that he preached to every Gentile between Jerusalem and Alaricum. That's ridiculous, of course. He's not saying that. What he's saying is he has fulfilled the strategy that God gave him. 
And Paul's strategy, it's not everybody's strategy, but it's obviously a strategy that Paul employed throughout the book of Acts, was that he would go to strategic centers in a given region. He would go to capital cities or influential cities, economic centers or whatever, that were, that were key strategic centers. And he would preach the gospel and he would see some Gentiles saved. And then he would get them meeting together as a church and he would appoint leaders in that church. And then he'd say, okay, it's your job to reach this region. I'm moving on. And he'd go on to the next. And that's the pattern we see throughout the book of Acts. So we see him kind of hop skipping across Asia Minor and then into Europe as he as he kind of hopscotches across, hitting the strategic centers, planting churches, which then, because they also have the Great Commission, have a responsibility within their realm. And so they begin to reach out. And so Paul, having done that, has reached every area, every area between Jerusalem and Illyricum. Okay. Every area that God has led him to. Now, there's some that God said, don't go there. There's a classic case there where he gets to Troas and, and he can't figure out where do I go next. And so he wants to go to one place and the Holy Spirit says, no, don't go there. So, okay, then I'll go here. And the Holy Spirit says, no, don't go there. And it's, what do we do, Lord? And so he says, sir, until God says, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so then he goes to Macedonia. So he's simply following the leading of the Holy Spirit and employing the strategy that God has given. And he's fulfilled it. He's accomplished it. So the question is, what next? I've gotten this far. Now, it doesn't mean his life and ministry is over. What it means is, I've got everything done that God wanted me to get done up to this point. What's next? And that leads into the discussion he's going to bring up in the verses that we're going to talk about next time about uh, Rome and where does Rome fit into all this? Okay, that's what comes up in the discussion. That's what he's leading up to. Okay, but what he's saying here is that is that God has been working through me as I've been going out, and 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 this whole thing has been fulfilled. And so he says, I've discovered something I can boast in. And I had to give up boasting because all I ever had to boast in before was myself. I was a Jew, I was a Pharisee, I was this, I was that, etc., etc. I had to give all that up. But as I began to serve God, I found something I could boast in. I could boast in what Christ has done. That's what he says. I have discovered, he says in verse 17, he says, uh, he says, therefore in Christ Jesus I have found reason for boasting in the things pertaining to God. The things of God. God's things. Those are the things I can boast in. Not my things. Not the things I've done, but the things that Christ has done. So he says, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Resulting in the obedience of Gentiles in word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, he says. So that he has fully preached the gospel of God. And then he says this in verse 20. He says, And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, 
and they who have not heard shall understand. We discover something about the particular special ministry that Paul had, uh, that God had given to Paul. And that was that for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit had impressed upon Paul, Paul, what I want you to do is I want you to go and preach where I have not yet been named. So Paul just had this policy. This policy, generally speaking, was I go where Christ is not named. I don't go where Christ is already named. In other words, I don't want to be building on another man's foundation. Now, we could infer from that that Paul has some kind of principled objection to building on another man's foundation, but we know he didn't. Paul doesn't see anything wrong with building on another man's foundation. In 1 Corinthians, in chapter 3, he talks about how the Corinthians are getting in this thing about I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he says, come on now, people. I planted, Apollos watered. Okay? And God has appointed to each one our ministry. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So what Paul is saying is, God has appointed to me the ministry of planting and he has appointed to Apollos the ministry of watering. Okay? And, and so... Paul understands that Apollos is coming in on Paul's heels and building on what Paul has already done. And Paul says, God has appointed us this way. So Paul is not being critical of Apollos for coming in. In the next, in the verses immediately following, he switches from the agricultural analogy to the architectural analogy and he starts talking about the building. And he talks about the foundation and building on the foundation. And in those verses, he says, he says, okay, now I've built, I've laid a foundation. He says, now people are coming in after me. He doesn't say, don't come in after me. Don't build on my foundation. That's not what he says. He says, you be careful what you build on my foundation. You be careful what you build. So Paul has no principled objection to building on another man's foundation. It's just that that's not what God wanted him doing. God had called Paul to go where nobody else had preached. And so apparently, Paul had kind of personalized this prophecy from Isaiah 52 that he quotes here at the end of our passage. He refers to this, this where, where in Isaiah, Isaiah talking about the, uh, the servant of the Lord, who's a messianic passage here, the servant of the Lord, and he said, he's going to sprinkle the Gentiles, he's going to bless the Gentiles, he says, and he says, those who had, not, who had no news, he says, are going to hear. And those who have not, who, uh, who have not uh, heard, he said, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm mixing up my words here. Let me get it right. Uh, he says, uh, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. And so there's this prophecy in Isaiah about the Gentiles and how these people are heard. And apparently, somehow, I don't know how, Paul had made a personal application of this passage. This is my job. This is what I get to do. I get to go to those places that haven't heard. I get to go to those people who haven't had the news. And I get to tell them. I read a couple of stories this week. Just, uh, I, I, I'm reading a book by William Lane Craig. And, and, and in, the, in the book, he tells a couple of stories. One where he had uh, he traveled to China with a Christian philosophy, uh, philosophy society. He's a Christian philosopher. He traveled to China and he was speaking. He was attending a conference in China and there was a 
Chinese graduate student there who was presenting uh, some uh, information, uh, presenting a lecture on uh, what's called the column cosmological argument. It's an argument uh, about uh, first causes and that sort of thing. And it has a direct relationship to arguments for the existence of God. Although this guy was an atheist. He had no idea. He was just arguing about this whole first cause issue and making some conclusions. And, and, and William Lane Craig said he was sitting there listening to this. His wife is kind of nudging him and saying, can you believe what this guy is saying? And so afterwards, William Lane Craig goes up to this guy and he says, he says, have you ever thought about the implications of this for God? You know, and the guy's kind of going, what? And so he hands him a, a pamphlet of his he had written that was, had been translated into Chinese. And he hands him this pamphlet. And the guy goes home and he reads it. And the next day they meet each other. And he says, he says, I was reading it. He says, I was so excited I cried. Yeah. Here, he says, I didn't know anybody else was thinking these thoughts. And here I realized... You know, and uh, so I don't know what happened. I don't know if the guy got saved or not. But but then he tells another story. Uh, he tells a story, a similar story about uh, he, he, he was in Europe. He was in Germany and he was speaking or at some kind of a conference in Germany. And uh, and they happened to be talking to a, a, a woman who was a physicist and uh, and and they were interacting with her on some things. And uh, and uh, she had just totally lost any faith in God. And and William Lane Craig's wife said to him, said, you should give him your doctoral dissertation. Yeah, this is what we do for evangelism, right? We hand out our doctoral dissertation. <laughs> but he says, you should give him your doctoral dissertation. Have her read that. And uh, so he did. He, he got a copy, loaned a copy of his doctoral dissertation. She went home. And she read it that night. And she came back the next day. She, she was just blown away. He's a thing she'd never heard of before. Yeah, I forget now what the what his dissertation exactly I think it was on the column cosmological argument, I believe. But at any rate, so she so she reads it and she's blown away. And and so when they meet with her, they uh, they they had handwritten a copy, their own handwritten copy of the four spiritual laws, so they could share the four spiritual laws. This is obviously several years ago, so they could share the four spiritual laws with her. So they they sat down and they go through their own handwritten copy of the four because they didn't have one that was printed. So they they made their own to meet with her, and so they shared the four. And they got to the end, those are two circles, and you ask the person here, which circle are you in? And it's, and he said she put her hand over that, and she says, "This is too personal. I can't talk about this now." She went home. She took that home and she read it. And that night she gave her life to Christ. She came back the next day and she was just, she was just blown away. And they kept in touch with her and she was growing and young months later and she was still growing. Folks, there are people out there who are hearing this stuff for the very first time. You know, we're so jaded here in America because we've heard it so much and everybody we talk to and most of the people we talk to have heard it so much. But the world is full of people who have never once heard the name of Christ as anything other than a cuss word. And Paul says, those are the people I'm going for. Those are the people I'm going after. And what happened, because that was Paul's strategy, because Paul was not content to simply say, well, hey, you know, I don't have to do all this hard work. I don't have to suffer shipwreck and, and get beat. And all. You know, I can go over here where there's a church already established and they'll hire me as their pastor and I'll just preach here the rest of my life. He could have done that. But that's not what God called him to do. And I'm glad he didn't do that. Because since Paul didn't do that, he moved 
rapidly, within a period of a few years, he moved from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. And then ultimately, we believe he ultimately got to Spain and the gospel penetrated into parts of Europe that it would not have otherwise penetrated into. And I want you to think about the fact that Asia Minor, where his ministry first started, and if he had stopped there, that all of Asia Minor is now under Muslim rule. The Muslims came in several hundred years later, conquered the territory, and over a period of a couple hundred years, forced converted everybody to Muslim. That area is lost to Christianity. But Europe then became the center of the Christian world. And you and I are Christians today because Paul was not content to build upon the foundation of another. But he said, there's people out there who haven't heard and those are the people God wants me to go to. And this then becomes the basis of his explanation to the Romans of why he's waited so long to come to Rome and why he's coming now and what his plans are next, which we'll get to the next time we're together. Now, next week, I do plan to be gone because I'm going to go boast in my grandkids. And, uh, but Mike's agreed to fill in. He's got some really good stuff to talk to you about. So he'll be here next week and fill in for me. So, so we'll pick up in Romans 15 in two weeks. Thank you.